0: Welcome, everyone, to this uh, lecture this evening, which is organised jointly by DESTIN and by the Centre for Civil Society and Department for Social Policy. And we're we're all very honoured to have here Professor James Scott. And I feel I almost – I don't need to say anything, really, because I'm sure – everyone here is familiar with his uh, books such as Weapons of the Weak, The Moral Economy of the Peasant, Domination, The Arts of Resistance, and Seeing Like a State. And I have to say I've used these in my own teaching and thoroughly enjoyed using them, and so have the students. Professor Scott is at Yale University. He's both a professor of political science and anthropology, and he's also the director of the Agrarian Studies Program. And he's going to talk this evening about why civilizations can't climb hills: A Political History of Statelessness in Southeast Asia. He will speak for about 45 minutes, and then we will feed field questions. Okay, over to you. Thank you.
1: Thank you, uh, and thanks for the warm introduction. I I worry that for those of you who may be familiar with earlier work of mine, you'll be disappointed. So this perhaps is a chance to make your exit, if you like. Uh, I because I think my talk uh, is antiquarian, and because it is uh, because I'm trying to cover the range of an entire manuscript that I'm completing, that it's rather long on assertions and rather short in documentation uh, and evidence. But I hope to give the broad outlines of the argument that I want to make. I've been trying to understand for actually nearly a decade the relationships between hill people and valley people in mainland Southeast Asia. Uh, it's the most important social cleavage uh, in the region. It's the thing that, in a sense, Bedevils the history of state formation uh, and is at the core of a great many of social conflicts. And it's for that reason that I've both um, hurled myself at the Burmese language and at the literature on upland groups in Southeast Asia. The, I want to frame my talk with the closing phrases of Pierre Closter's great book La Societe Contre l'État he wrote in his last, these last two sentences, quote, it is said that the history of peoples who have a history is the history of class struggle. It might be said with at least as much truthfulness that the history of peoples without history is a history of their struggle against the state. Klost was the first person to recognize that what seemed to anthropologists, and anthropologists in South America like Neolithic survivals the Anomamo the Siriono the Guarani were actually ex-sedentary cultivators who had taken up foraging in order to escape forced labor in the Spanish word acciones, and to escape disease and that they had Adapted a social structure designed to prevent permanent hierarchies from arising among them. He echoed Low- Owen Lattimore and many others who regarded nomadic pastoralism not as an earlier subsistence pattern but as a secondary adaptation to sedentary agriculture, a secondary adaptation by peoples who wish to place themselves at a distance from the state and from taxes and from servitude. I hope that my argument will please Pierre Closter's ghost. Uh, Zomia, which is a name Willem van Schendel has given to the area that I'm going to be talking about tonight, uh, is depicted rather badly, I'm afraid, in this uh, this map. Uh, This is Southeast Asia and the area outlined and slightly shaded called the Southeast Asia Massif in this particular map is the area that I'm talking about. It represents the area roughly over 200 to 300 meters of upland Southeast Asia. You can see that it runs all the way from the central islands of Vietnam all the way through uh, the five main uh, Southeast Asian states into northeastern India and covers the Chinese provinces of Yunnan, Guizhou, Guangxi and parts of Sichuan. It's an expanse of something like 2.5 million square kilometers. And it contains something like 100 million, as near as we can tell, minority groups um, living in the hills. Minority peoples of truly bewildering ethnic and linguistic complexity. Geographically, it's also known as the Southeast Asian mainland massif. In the map that I showed you earlier, Uh, Willem Van Chendel proposes to extend Zomia all the way through Tibet and to Soviet Central Asia. I propose simply to talk about the Southeast Asian portion uh, of this. It's a huge area that is at the periphery of nine states and at the center of none. Since it also bestrides the usual regional, regional designations, Southeast Asia, East Asia, South Asia, And since what makes it interesting is its ecological variety and its relationship to states, it represents a novel object of study, a kind of transnational Appalachia, if you will, and perhaps a new way to think about area studies as well. My thesis is rather simple and suggested, though I'm sure will be controversial as well, and may be wrong in some particulars. Zomia is, I think, the last remaining region of the world, largest remaining region of the world, whose peoples have not yet been fully incorporated into nation states. Its days are, of course, numbered. Not so very long ago, however, such self-governing peoples were the great majority of mankind. They are seen today from the Valley Kingdoms, by the Thais, by the Burmese, by the Vietnamese, as our living ancestors. What we were like before we discovered uh, wet rice cultivation, Buddhism, civilization. On the, car- on the contrary, I argue that hill peoples are best understood as runaway, fugitive, maroon communities who have over the course of the last 2,000 years been fleeing the inconveniences of state-making projects in the valley. Slavery, conscription, taxes, corvée labor, epidemics and warfare. Virtually everything about these people's livelihoods, their social organization, their ideologies, and more controversially, even their illiteracy, can be read as strategic choices designed to keep the state at arm's length. Their physical dispersion in rugged terrain, their mobility, their cropping practices, their kinship structure, their pliable ethnic identities and their devotion to prophetic millenarian leaders are designed to avoid incorporation into states and to prevent a state from springing up among them. The particular state that most of them have been evading these many years has been the precocious Han Chinese state. A history of flight is embedded in many hill legends. The documentary record though it's somewhat speculative until the year 1500, is clear enough after that, including frequent military campaigns against hill peoples under the Ming and Qing dynasties, described by many as campaigns of extermination, and culminating in the unprecedented uprisings in southwestern China in the mid-19th century that left millions seeking refuge. The flight from Burmese and Thai slave raiding states is also amply documented the argument is novel I think in several respects the huge literature on state making both contemporary and historical pays virtually no attention to its obverse which is the history of deliberate and reactive statelessness this is a history of those who got away at least temporarily and state making cannot be understood apart from it It's also what makes this something of an anarchist history. It might be collected together with together with the histories of all those other peoples extruded by coercive state making and unfree labor systems: Gypsies, Cossacks, Inuit, and so on. I could go on forever. The argument also reverses some of the received wisdom about primitivism generally. Pastoralism, foraging, shifting cultivation, secondary lineage systems ought to be seen in many cases as a secondary adaptation, a kind of, for lack of a better word, self-barbarianization adopted by peoples who have strategically chosen their location, their subsistence, and their social structure with state evasion in mind. If my argument is right, it's also a deconstruction of the Chinese and other civilizational discourses about barbarians, about the raw, about the primitive. On close inspection, these terms boil down to actually mean as yet ungoverned, not yet registered, not yet taxpaying, not yet incorporated. The possibility of people voluntarily, including the Han themselves, going over to the barbarians and moving beyond the civilized frontier is not entertained in most of the civilizational narratives. Those are narratives of people gradually at lesser and greater speeds being drawn into the luminous center of Confucian civilization or Theravada civilization in the Indianized states of Southeast Asia. Because there's no place in the civilizational narratives for this reflux, for this self-barbarianization, such statuses are stigmatized and ethnicized. Ethnicity and tribe, you could say, begin precisely where taxes and sovereignty end. That's true for the Roman Empire and it's true for the Han Chinese Empire as well. Usually forms of subsistence and kinship are taken as ecologically and culturally determined. By analyzing various forms of cultivation, particular crops, certain social structures, and physical mobility patterns for their escape value, I try to treat such givens as political choices and often strategic political choices. It is perhaps worth it in a very simplistic way to give a kind of broad account of the history of stateless peoples, which I don't have time to do in any nuanced way. Um, But let me do it in a very simple way as a way of framing this project. Taking the broadest possible angle lens, Homo sapiens have been around for 200,000 years. In Southeast Asia, Homo sapiens have been around for about 50,000 years. Sedentary grain agriculture was invented roughly 8,000 years ago. And the small states in Southeast Asia that popped up, popped up roughly 3,000 years ago. Sedentary agriculture is a necessary condition, not sufficient, but a necessary condition for state formation. It's only sedentary agriculture that concentrates population and production in a small area where it can be controlled and the surplus can be appropriated. It's possible to have sedentary agriculture without states, Minangkabau in Sumatra, a good example. It's also possible to have states without sedentary agriculture, but in those states tend to dominate a trade route, sit on a bottleneck in a trade route, uh, and uh, state making then is their basis of controlling the taxes that can be extracted from this strategic point. From this uh, panorama, one can see that the states arising a mere 3,000 years ago, that most human experience has been the experience of statelessness. And the states that arose in early Southeast Asia controlled only a minuscule portion of Southeast Asia, let alone the globe. They saw the areas outside these small states as fiscally sterile, as containing a dispersed people and production that there was absolutely no way to uh, access its resources. This huge area was seen as a barbarian, periphery by the Chandragupta empires of India, by the early Han dynasties, and by Rome as well. And relations, one could say, again broadly speaking without much nuance, with the barbarians were of two kinds. In Southeast Asia, the first relationship with barbarians was that of trade. As early as the 9th century, hill peoples in Borneo were collecting medicinal plants, aromatic woods, luxury items, feathers, bezoar stones, ivory, and so on, for barter at the coast for the Chinese luxury trade. They were, if you like, completely integrated in the Eurasian uh, system of trade, but on a voluntary basis of barter uh, and exchange and a relationship that was completely compatible with their political autonomy. The second relationship to the barbarian periphery was one of slavery. Slavery was, in early Southeast Asian history, the most important item in trade. Even before the heyday of the North Atlantic slave trade, Malay cargoes were essentially cargoes of slaves. All the wars between Southeast Asian states were generally wars for the capture of people in order to move them back to the state core. They were very rarely wars about the conquest of territory. The idea was to move people from this fiscally sterile zone. and a fiscally sterile landscape to a place where they and their work were accessible, legible, and could be appropriated. This is the great demographic shift in Southeast Asia, I think well chronicled by Anthony Reid in his work on early Southeast Asian history. The grain-based states that I pointed to were militarily strong because of this concentration of manpower, and their grain-based property systems and inherited property made for high fertility and an expansionist pattern of agricultural colonization. That is to say, these Southeast Asian states gradually over time, with many pulses and setbacks, expanded over the rice plains that we now associate with much of Southeast Asia, Uh, creating daughter villages uh, in a colonial expansion. That, of course, is the pattern of colonialism generally. One could say that the white settler colonies of the United States, Australia, Canada, Argentina, were in fact the reproduction of sedentary grain landscapes from Europe uh, to the New World and the indigenous people were either chased out of the way or exterminated. In those cases where colonialism confronted uh, already settled agrarian populations with their own elites. These elites were displaced. The colonizers uh, replaced them at the apex and instituted a more efficient system of taxation and uh, land titling. Notice that even in the period of high colonialism, even in Burma and Thailand and Vietnam, the fact is that most of these areas were not successfully governed by the colonial uh, powers. Most of the territory that was formally within the boundaries of the colony was, in fact, an ungoverned or lightly governed territory. There were zones of no sovereignty. There were zones of mutually canceling weak sovereignty. Beginning in the 20th century, one could say, certainly for Southeast Asia and with a vengeance after the Second World War, there are two changes that radically transform everything mm-hmm. and make everything I am will have to say this, to, this evening completely irrelevant after 1945. Uh, one of these changes is, of course, not just the ideology of the sovereign nation-state extending its power to the physical borders of the nation-state, but also the acquisition of the technology that allowed these states, railroads, uh, surface... Uh, surfaced roads, uh, uh, internal combustion vehicles, and so on, to extend their power to the physical frontiers um, of the state for the first time. The second change (laughs) is that it turned out, of course, that these ungoverned or lightly governed or mutually canceling sovereignty areas turned out to be vitally important for natural resources under mature capitalism. They were the site of deposits of iron ore, of coal, of oil, of timber, of copper, of bauxite, of the rare minerals important for electronics in the aerospace industry, for hydroelectric sites, and so on. Hence the production of state power to the vast ungoverned periphery of these states and the movement of huge numbers of valley populations into the hills to engulf minority hill populations and to express sovereignty by a more loyal population at the frontier Uh, back then to hills and valleys Uh, again simplifying one could say that valleys have historically been the site of state formation of hierarchy of taxes of kings and permanent clergy of large-scale war, of self-described civilization, and of wet rice cultivation. The hills, by contrast, have been the site of swidden, fire field, or slash and burn shifting cultivation. No permanent states, relative dispersal of populations, a social structure that was hierarchical but very unstable and in some cases actually not hierarchical but radically egalitarian. I'll explain that later. Um, And a tremendous amount of cultural and linguistic variety, unprecedented compared to the valleys. You can go from one end of the Burman rice plain to another and find the same customs, the same patterns, the same village formation, uh, the same religious rituals. And you go 20 miles in the hills, and you encounter every 20 miles radical differences in customs, language, and so on. Uh, There was a surplus in the hills, but it was not paid to kings, nor was it paid to clergy. The paradox, I think, is that people have been moving back and forth across this divide in huge numbers for as long as we can tell. Hill people have been becoming valley people for as long as we know this is of course the familiar civilizational narrative in which primitives come from the hills and are gradually drawn in to this uh, valley civilization but it was just as common and this is part of the point of my uh, my talk it was just as common at least until the mid-19th century for valley people to move to the hills this is less acknowledged because it represents an admission that civilized people are going over to the barbarians Uh, when the Burmese or the Vietnamese or the Thais talk about the hills they're talking about not just going uphill to a higher altitude they're talking about an archaeological visit to the past for them the people in the hills are social fossils uh, who under the best circumstances will be gradually incorporated into the national fabric and under the worst circumstances are dangerous, shifting, cultivating uh, barbarians. In this context, it's worth recalling what Owen Lattimore had to say about the great walls of China. Lattimore said that the first thing we must understand about the great walls of China is that they were built as much to keep the Chinese in as they were to keep the barbarians out that tax-shy Chinese who were sedentary cultivators were going over to the pastoral zone to escape the burdens and inconvenience of uh, Chinese rule. And yet, this bright line between hill and valley has always remained in place and is understood by most uh, Southeast Asians as being an essential difference between essentially different kinds of people. This distinction between hills and valleys uh, has been noticed elsewhere in the world, Uh, most famously perhaps by Fernand Brodel in uh, The Mediterranean World in his second chapter, On Mountains. He thought that the hills and valleys were separated by an unbridgeable cultural gap. Let me quote him, uh, partly because he's so outrageous. He writes... Uh, The mountains are, as a rule, a world apart from civilizations, which are an urban and lowland achievement. Their history, the history of the mountains, is to have none, to remain always on the fringes of the great waves of civilization, even the longest and most persistent, which may spread over great distances in the horizontal plane, but which are powerless to move vertically when faced with an obstacle of several hundred meters. Paul Wheatley, talking about Southeast Asia, wrote that the Sanskritic tongue was stilled to silence at 500 meters, essentially the same observation. Ibn Khaldun went out of his way to say that the Arabs could conquer territory as long as it was flat, but once they came to mountains and gorges, Arab civilization stopped. And Paul Moose, the great student of traditional Vietnam, said and I think I've got this quote right, that the, the Vietnamese ethnic adventure uh, was stopped in its tracks when it met the high buttresses of the Anamite Quirrell era, uh, of the mountains in the central spine of Vietnam. My argument is not that civilizations can't climb hills, but rather that people climb hills in order to get away from civilizations or more precisely to get away from the state. That Zomia is with a 2,000 year perspective on the broadest possible view uh, people have been moving to put themselves at a distance from state making projects in the valley from taxes, conscription, moving for reasons of political and religious dissent as well, moving because of famines and disease some of much of which was caused by crowding and monocropping in the valleys and also from desertion from armed forces and fleeing actual armed conflict and war. And if you look at this over time at the Zomia hills if you like can be seen as the kind of site of some maniacal uh, game of bumper cars uh, in which Groups have been moving uh, into an area, pushed again by another group that has been pushed out, uh, sometimes overlapping them, moving further up in the hills, another group moving. And this has oscillated over time with people moving back and forth as conditions at the center change. This is called, in other contexts where people have observed something like this, a shatter zone. Uh, And these shatter zones are places of tremendous cultural and linguistic diversity. Uh, Richard White's great book, The Middle Ground, about the uh, Great Lakes region in the sort of early colonial period uh, between the French and the English Uh, is an extraordinary depiction of such a shatter zone. The work by Stuart Schwartz uh, on South America after the Spanish conquest uh, also outlines the process by which such shatter zones are created. We can trace the pattern of flight and pulses of people leaving under the Tang Dynasty and the the Yuan Dynasty, um, the Mongol Dynasty, uh, and also especially under the Ming and Qing. And this continues, of course, with a huge flight after the Great Taiping Rebellion in the middle of the 19th century, and after the Panthei and Miao Rebellions in Guizhou, uh, also in the middle of the 19th century. It can be traced up to and including the Second World War, when people are moving down uh, into these hill areas, uh, it can be traced uh, as migrations in also in search of better opium lands to grow uh, the opium poppy. Under the Great Leap Forward, many hill peoples moved down from Yunnan and Guizhou into Southeast Asia to escape the inconveniences of the Great Leap Forward. That is, I think it's uh, as a point of departure it makes a lot more sense to see the people in the hills not as barbarians but as early political refugees and to see them in a sense one of the models that one might use is the history of the Cossacks we know that the Cossacks were nothing more and nothing less than serfs from European Russia who ran away from all over European Russia And when they came, let's say, to the Don Basin, they became the Don Cossacks, the Azov Sea, the Azov Cossacks. I think there were 16 or 17 Cossack hosts, including in Siberia, uh, depending where the Cossacks went. There at the frontier, under different ecological conditions, they learned the horseback habits of the Tartars. Uh, They had common property, uh, and they had, in a sense, an emancipated social structure, and they became the Cossacks later recruited by the Tsars, the Ottomans, and the Poles as military forces as well, just as Hill Peoples in Southeast Asia have been recruited as uh, mercenaries. But one can say that in a sense today, the Cossacks have a very strong corporate identity as a kind of ethnic group, but they started out simply as maroon runaways, if you like, uh, from serfdom in European Russia. The other pattern that I think it's good to think with is uh, Ernest Gellner's depiction of the relationship between Berber and Arab areas in the high atlas uh, in Morocco and he coins the term uh, marginal tribalism in order to capture this relationship uh, let me quote him "Quote: such tribesmen know the possibility of being incorporated in a more centralized state indeed they may have deliberately rejected and violently resisted the alternative the tribes of the High Atlas are of this kind. Until the advent of the modern state, they were dissident and self consciously so. Marginal tribalism is the type of tribal society which exists at the edge of non tribal societies. It arises from the fact that the inconveniences of submission make it attractive to withdraw from political authority, and the balance of power, the nature of mountain or desert terrain, make it feasible such tribalism is politically marginal it knows what it rejects let me move to the question of demography and the control of state space in Southeast Asia there's a Thai proverb that goes uh, put vegetables in the basket put people in the mong mong being the idea of the small rice core and a tiny statelet Uh, it's a reference to concentrating manpower and production uh, in this central core area let's imagine that you are Jean-Baptiste Colbert and your job was to to design a form of agriculture that would be suitable for state appropriation as a kind of one person think tank for the Southeast Asian traditional monarchy You would want to concentrate manpower and grain within a roughly 200 to 250 kilometer radius of the center. Uh, A rule of thumb in this respect is that a team of oxen, two two oxen, pulling a cart with grain on it will have between 200 and 250 uh, kilometers, even if the terrain is flat, will have consumed the load that they are pulling Uh, and so it makes no sense to transport grain much further than those uh, distances. The Chinese have a proverb, never make a grain sale over a thousand li uh, that expresses the same rule of thumb. If you were the Jean-Baptiste Colbert and that was your job, I think you would invent, if you didn't already know it, wet rice cultivation, irrigated wet rice. The advantages of wet rice for states are enormous. Not only in an obvious way does it concentrate population, but wet rice, this will sound dumb, um, but only will make sense uh, by contrast later, uh, wet rice grows above the ground. Um, It all gets ripe at more or less the same time. If the army and the taxman want your rice, all they have to do is show up when it's ripe and they can have it all. If they decide they don't like you, they can also show up and burn you out. Uh, and chase you off. Rice, if it's unhusked, stores quite well. It has high value per unit weight and volume and actually can be shipped uh, 250 kilometers uh, or further. It, it It is, in a sense, uh, a uh, it realizes uh, the limit of the distances over which grain can be uh, shipped. Therefore, the areas that had rice cores uh, also tended to have states. If the rice core was large, the state might be large. If the rice core was small, the state might be small. Again, a necessary but not sufficient condition for state formation. The problem of holding population was most serious in Southeast Asia because of the demography. In 1700, the population of Southeast Asia was roughly five people per square kilometer. That compares with China and India, or India and China, of 32 to 37 people per square kilometer. That is to say, in Southeast Asia, controlling arable land did not give you automatically control over population. People could and did run away. And that's why, of course, wars were about capturing people and concentrating them back at the center. In the mid-19th century, most of the people at the Burmese core, the court of Ava and its service population, if you want to call it that, within uh, the grasp of the classical Burmese state before British colonialism occurred, uh, roughly half of the population were, were slaves or captured people and their descendants. In Siam, it was more than half of the population that were captured people and their descendants. Uh, The proverbs about state-making in Southeast Asia echo this again and again. There is a um, Burmese proverb that goes, Ah, yes, it is easy for a subject to find a lord, but for a lord to find a subject, now that's difficult. Uh, There's a Thai proverb that goes, uh, In a house with many servants, the doors may be safely left open. In a large house with many servants, the doors may be safely left open. In a small house uh, with few servants, the doors must be kept shut. And thus the Thais developed a system of tattooing uh, in which subjects were tattooed with a brand uh, indicating their owner and there were bounty hunters who coursed the forest and brought people back uh, to those people who, were, uh, who held them as a subject population and used their labor. The geography of state-making was both special and important. And in this context, the maps that we normally use to understand the Southeast Asian world or many other early state-making projects are not just a hindrance, but they're radically misleading. The insight of Brodel and for the Southeast Asia context, the Sunda Shelf by Tony Reed is that water joins and rugged terrain divides. It's uh, it's the key to understanding the structure of state-making in Southeast Asia. Um, it's said in a, a book on the 19th century that in 1800, it was just about as fast to go from Southampton, England to the Cape of Good Hope by ship than it was to go overland by stagecoach from London to Edinburgh. Now, even if that's close to being correct, it's an astounding statistic and uh, reminds us how water, especially easy water, that's easily navigable, joins people and rugged terrain um, separates them. A place that is 300 miles across easy water is in every effective, important sense closer than a place that is 20 miles across rugged mountain passes. What we need in the Southeast Asian context and many other contexts, I think, is what I would call friction of distance maps in which the unit of measurement is not a mile or a kilometer, but the unit of measurement is a day's walk, a day's ox cart ride, a day's travel by a small uh, boat. I have a, a bad illustration of this, but it's the only thing I have at the moment. This is a small, tiny kingdom Rice Corps uh, Yang, on the Burmese Chinese border. It was the site of a small traditional kingdom from time to time. The, uh, the dotted lines the three concentric circles each represent the distance that you could travel if the land were completely flat. One day to here two days to here three days to here. Then corrected for the ruggedness of the terrain, each of these ragged circles represents the distance you can cover given the actual terrain and ruggedness of the territory. Uh, If you could imagine doing such maps for kingdoms after kingdoms, you would understand why the kingdom of Mandalay and Ava stopped at the Shan Hills and extended to a considerable extent for 200, sometimes 300 miles uh, to the south along the Irrawaddy where travel was extremely easy so what we need in a sense is maps that would vastly stretch the terrain of rugged mountains to indicate the actual difficulty of traversing them uh, and also of swamps and marshes I'll be talking about mountains but I might as well be talking about swamps and marshes or mangrove coasts and so on and um, Those areas would be vastly stretched to indicate the difficulty of traversing them. And flat terrain and easy water would be vastly shrunk in order to indicate the ease of moving across uh, this. This would look like a kind of fairground mirror map uh, of Southeast Asia and would be unfamiliar and disturbing to all of us But it would not be distorting. It is the current maps that we see that actually distort uh, social relations and political relations. That is to say, if we are interested in actual contact and exchange, in trade and cultural influence, in linguistic and religious integration, not necessarily political integration, uh, then these are the maps we need, not the maps that we normally have. And of course, there have been kingdoms... Uh, and cultural areas like the Aegean or the Mediterranean world or the Malay uh, maritime uh, kingdoms of insular Southeast Asia that were integrated across water rather than across rugged terrain. It's also why the great states of Southeast Asia uh, in Burma are located along the Irrawaddy or the Sittang, the great states of, of Thailand or Siam located along the Chao Phraya. Uh, the Great Angkor was uh, located on the Great Lake, which is an arm of the Mekong, uh, and the Red River was the site of classical Vietnamese civilization in the north. The exception that proves the rule is the Salween River, or the Nu River, uh, as it's called in China, which runs through a gorge and has very little, is na- unnavigable for much of uh, its course, and the only states that it has spawned are states at its estuary. Thatton, Martaban, uh, and today the city of Mulyamain in uh, in Burma. So if we wanted to understand the, uh, the logic of the projection of state power in Southeast Asia, I would need another map. I'm moving here because I have to uh, have you visualize this map because I don't actually have it. Uh, if you can imagine me holding a rigid board on which there was a map of southwest China and southeast Asia in which the actual terrain was indicated by relief on the map in proportion to actual altitudes. Uh, And again, on a rigid uh, board that I was holding horizontally. And then, if you imagine that at the site of the major classical southeast Asian states, there was a well of red ink that was filled to the brim. And then imagine me tipping ever so little this map, back and forth, forward and backwards, one degree, two degrees, three degrees. This red ink would then spread over the easy low areas where the terrain was relatively flat. And you would have a good indication for all those areas where the classical Southeast Asian state was relatively able, when it was powerful, it wasn't always powerful, to extend its power. Uh, And if you wanted to, in a sense, have that red uh, run into other areas, uh, you would have to tilt this board more radically to the right and left and forward and backward. And in general, as a really crude rule of thumb, the degree to which you had to turn this board in order to get the red ink to run into such areas would give you an indication of the degree of exertion that it would take for a state to project its power in such areas and to maintain its power in these uh, areas. It's also worth noting that the traditional Southeast Asian state was also um, a seasonal state. That is to say, historically, the Southeast Asian state was. And the reach of the state was vastly expanded during the dry season when it was relatively easy to move across the land. And when the monsoon rains came, uh, the kingdom actually shrank almost to the palace walls in some cases. Uh, even today, the Burmese uh, campaigns against ethnic rebels are almost always, not. now that they have helicopters uh, and all-weather roads, it's not uh, universally true, but by and large, almost all the campaigns against the minority rebels are conducted in the dry season and everything stops more or less during the uh, monsoon. Before I say something about uh, Zomia, go back to Zomia, let me characterize its agriculture. And here, uh, let me ask you to imagine that you are now a uh, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, who's been hired by the hill tribes rather than by the classical state, and now your job is to invent a form of agriculture that is appropriation proof or appropriation for I believe you would fall in love with root crops. taros, yams, sweet potatoes, potatoes, uh, and my nominee for the champion escape crop uh, is cassava or manioc um, a New World crop, by the way? Um, cassava can be planted almost any time, anywhere. It grows with extremely little extreme with very little care. Uh, it can be disguised easily among other cultivars, planted a little here and there. It ripens in less than a year. And the most crucial advantage of it is that it can be safely left underground for another two years and still be perfectly good to eat. If the state wants your cassava, it's going to have to dig it up tuber by tuber, just the way you do. And then it's got a cart filled with tubers that actually aren't very valuable. Um, It's one reason, and it's so easy to provide the calories for a satisfactory subsistence just with cassava that all the plantation owners in central america tried to prohibit the planting of cassava or manioc uh, because it well, as they said all you had all you needed was a hoe and a fish hook and you didn't have to work for the plantation anymore maize for a certain when the new world crop of maize when it came to southeast asia for a certain amount of time was also an escape crop the great advantage of maize is that it grew another 1,500 feet above where unirrigated rice could grow in the watershed. The Portuguese introduced maize to Southeast Asia in the 16th century, and within 60 or 70 years, it had spread all over much of Southeast Asia, and it occupied exactly that zone of altitude that was above where hill rice would grow. What it meant was but it provided hill peoples with another 1,500 feet of running room up the watershed uh, if they wished to distance themselves from other uh, stronger peoples or from the valley state. You could say that the standard practice of agriculture in the hills, swiddening or shifting cultivation, is itself an extremely effective way of avoiding state appropriation. Uh, in the hills... Anytime there is a perennial water source, you could grow irrigated wet rice. The problem with irrigated wet rice is that it creates hierarchy, that it's a juicy target for people who are raiding, concentrated people and concentrated grain, um, uh, uh, and it is also a target for uh, uh, efforts by strongmen in nearby states to take over. Great advantage of swiddening is that it involves. Polycropping, as many as as little as 12 crops would be standard and sometimes as many as 50 or 60. So if the state arrives and wants to confiscate things from your swidden plots, assuming it can find them because the plots change every three or four years to another area and if, assuming they can find you if they want you, uh, there are only two or three things that are ripe. And so it's a completely fiscally sterile landscape for the state. Um, it's also easy to move. You don't have water buffaloes. You don't have uh, the, uh, if you like, the capital of labor sunk into buns and irrigation works as well. I would argue, and I'm not going to elaborate much on that argument, um, that, well, one can evaluate different systems of agriculture and different crops for their escape value in a rough and ready way which is something that I've tried to do Um, one can also evaluate forms of social structure also for their escape value the capacity of hill peoples to segment into small groups and to disperse across the landscape a social structure capable of almost infinite disaggregation and then reformulation Patterns of fissioning, patterns of unification, are so powerful in the hills that no one has failed to remark on them. They remind one of Gellner's idea that uh, of what ought to be a Berber proverb, which is, uh, would go, divide that ye be not ruled. Uh, A nice play on words of divide and rule. Uh, Or what also Middle Eastern. Um, uh, work on tribes describes as jellyfish tribes, tribes that once you try to grasp them, uh, then fission into small fragments fragments and disperse. Most people in the hills speak at least three languages. Um, And I think they are best seen as having not often a single ethnic identity but a kind of portfolio of identities that they display under different circumstances. And under certain conditions, they uh, one identity or another may be co- become more relevant, more strategic. Uh, and the plasticity of ethnic identity in the hills is something that has its own value for adaptation. The other thing that's remarkable in the hills is the hills, uh, not just the hills, but especially the hills are the site of millennial rebellions. uh, Millennial prophets in the hills. There are people in the hills such as the Karen, the Lahu, the Lizu, the Hmong, who seem to have a kind of cottage industry. They produce prophets the way other people produce uh, cassava and manioc. Uh, and, And the striking thing about millenarian prophets who pretend to be uh, the return of a just king or a Buddhist uh, wheel-turning king is that uh, when people follow such a prophet, there are more prophets than than you can shake a stick at uh, and only a few get a large following. But when they do get a large following, people often drop their cultivation. They leave their houses. They sell uh, their livestock and they move off with the prophet and completely reformulate uh, their lives and create new groups. There are little uh, units in the hills, the kareni would be, the red karen would be an example, that were started by millennial prophets. So there's this capacity through millennial action in the hills to completely reformulate identity, location, and social structure, and to start literally from zero. Uh, And it... Has these things arise under tremendous pressure from states, uh, and are I'm, in this case, this is not an antiquarian concern. There are uh, uh, prophets alive and thriving uh, in the hills of Southeast Asia today. Finally, I want to um, finish with a uh, assertion would be too strong a word, but a um, speculation and that is about writing and literacy the every almost every group in the hills all of which are illiterate have a legend about how they once had writing and lost it and these legends take either of two forms generally one form is that is a story of improvidence. We wrote our letters on a piece of cake and ate it when we got hungry. We wrote it on a hide uh, and the cow ate it. Uh, uh. Or our older brother ran th- a story of treachery. Our older brother ran away with it. Uh, the Chinese showed us the back of the slate rather than the front of the slate so that we didn't get our letters. Uh, and so there are Uh, notice that it begins with an assertion of an original equality and then the loss of writing. Uh, And it's astounding how universal these stories are. Um, uh, I think it's worth imagining or speculating that those people, for example, take an example like the Hmong, uh, the Miao, uh, or the Yao and Yen, who we know were in the Yangtze River Valley during the early Han expansion and who moved up the Yangtze watershed as the Han moved in. Most of these people of course stayed where they were and became Han. They disappeared essentially as Hmong or disappeared as Yao and became part of the Han uh, culture. Those who moved both had a history of movement uh, and also remained the Miao uh, or the Yao as they we know also that it's almost certain that they had a literate minority Uh, they lived cheek by jowl with literate civilizations they were uh, lowland cultivators themselves uh, and it's almost certain that they had at least a literate minority so the question is Uh, uh, why did they lose this literacy? One possibility, I think, is that there are tremendous advantages to an oral culture vis-a-vis a written culture. If you have a written history of your people, if you have a fixed itinerary that is written in a sacred text, if you have a written genealogy, it creates a kind of orthodoxy in which it's possible to measure deviations. It is, in a sense, a fixed point of reference. However, if you have an oral culture kept by bards and transmitted orally over time, it is a much more plastic tradition in which you can drop certain elements that are inconvenient in your genealogy, Uh, emphasize parts of your itinerary, leave other parts out depending on the kinds of connections you want to make in a new situation in which it's strategically adaptive to not have a certain history and to emphasize other aspects of your history. And if we add to this the fact that for people who were leaving state areas also probably associated writing with the technology of states themselves that is to say uh, states in a sense exercise their control through lists of registered households, through cadastral surveys, through uh, tax rolls, uh, and so on. And one reason why uh, peasants, early peasant rebellions, almost always go first to the record office and burn all the paper is because they associate Record keeping of that kind with a kind of state technology that is the basis of their oppression. That would be another reason why you might want to leave writing uh, behind. So I think that it is uh, plausible to imagine that while leaving state uh, taxes and state space over time, it made sense to also leave behind. Uh, literacy and written texts because they were an inconvenient impediment in a political situation that was constantly changing and threatening uh, and required uh, adaptation. So if um, if these are people to conclude if these are people as Brodell says without a history it may be because they choose not to have a history. It may be because they find a history, in some respects, inconvenient. It may be that they can have just as much history as they wish and only as much as they wish. And under circumstances, their history could expand or contract depending on whether it suits them and whether it makes sense. Finally, it's worth noting that all of the characteristics that are generally true of these hill peoples are precisely the the things that mark them out as barbarians. That is from the valley perspective, from the state perspective, from the high civilization perspective. Physical dispersal, simplified social organization, having no permanent rulers, shifting cultivation, illiteracy, and living in remote inaccessible places and also not practicing the great tradition religions of the valleys by and large. These are all coded and understood to be signs of primitive backwardness. Perhaps they're best understood as strategic adaptations, as political positionings vis-a-vis the valley, not some primordial condition. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. That was truly eloquent, comprehensive, and fascinating. And we'll open it up for questions now. And Jim would like to take questions one at a time. We'll have questions until about 10 to 8. Please, can you say your name and affiliation? Thank you. Question here. Yeah. Thank
2: you very much, Professor Scott. My name is Tim Forsyth, and I work at the LSE. Hi. Um, I know many people will have many questions, but my question will be about the 1945 thing. During your talk, you said maybe everything I'm saying here is relevant before 45, but not necessarily afterwards. But I'm just wondering how radically different things are now. How Possibly different. how radically different things are now. And consequently, if if there's a need to discuss how far what you're discussing is a historic study or how far the essence of it still continues to today. Um, And just to mention just one simple but but important thing, Um, I'm going to use the phrase environmental determinism, which you may disagree with, but I certainly got that flavor from your talk, certainly the bit about the Red Ink and the Valleys. Um, And surely, surely things are much more complicated these days. And it's also interesting that you didn't, I I think I'm right, that you didn't mention the word citizen or citizenship and the extent to which I I would have thought that that if you're talking about state formation, one also has to talk about citizenship as a willing participation in the state or at least the niche which people occupy. And it's the extent to which today state formation in the uplands is, is also importantly about what upland peoples do to participate within state or at least state narratives. And consequently, I guess what I'm trying to ask is your talk was very compelling, but is it really relevant to today?
1: Right. Um, I'm hoping to not have to answer for today. That's why I, in a sense, created my own little great wall of China uh, in 1945, uh, because it—it uh, it, it seems to me that—that that, uh, I am, of course, speaking largely about the colonial period and about the classical states in Southeast Asia, in which the word citizenship seems to me to be not exactly the word that we want. Uh, that is, you were a subject uh, of the state, and it's uh, not clear that there were, in particular, any privileges associated with being a member of a Southeast Asian state. Although, I wanted, I think I probably have not done justice to the fact that um, there's a tremendous oscillation over time. If I'm dealing with 2,000 years, people are moving toward the state at some times when uh, things are peaceful, trade is uh, advantageous and you have this the attraction, this is a standard narrative, of course, toward uh, these valley kingdoms as people move down to take advantages of both their hierarchy, the goods and the prestige that are available. available. And then there are periods of dynastic collapse, of chaos, of disease. uh, They're just as frequent, actually, as the periods when uh, the state is attractive. Uh, And so I I think I have not sufficiently emphasized this period of uh, this this issue of fluctuation after 1945 it seems to me that the hill peoples were maybe notionally seen as citizens and but there was an effort to actually control Swiddening because hill peoples were seen as a potential fifth column for the Thais and the Burmese and the Vietnamese that is to say uh, as a rule of thumb Most hill peoples, there are some exceptions, most hill peoples played a marginal role or no role at all in the struggles for national liberation. And in many cases, in in Burma, for example, they are seen as, in a sense, the military forces of the British uh, colonialists, the Karen and the Chin uh, and the Kachin. So they are seen as a potentially disloyal population. So there is this effort after the Second World War by the independent nation states to occupy that hilly periphery uh, as a security measure. And what's interesting about it to me is that in, in Vietnam, the hill peoples are seen as a right-wing danger. In Siam, in, in Thailand, the same, the same Hmong are seen as uh, left-wing potential communists uh, and so on. So, I don't think that for this early period there is much of a sense of uh, a sense for control and incorporation, but not for citizenship. Uh, and later on, partly because of the tremendous increases in population in the valley, there is uh, all throughout Southeast Asia, uh, including insular Southeast Asia, this huge movement of valley populations. Uh, into the hills. a sort of a a policy that is both voluntary migration and also sponsored state migration in Vietnam to put the kin people into the hills. Uh, The same, of course, with Han moving into these southwestern Chinese provinces, with Thai moving up into the hills. So I think there's a fairly systematic campaign in all of these places against shifting cultivation. Uh, An effort to move loyal population from the valleys into the hills, um, and uh, and therefore, most of the assertions that I was making about the relative autonomy of hill peoples seems to me to not right uh, hold much water uh, once we come to the contemporary period. There are um, well, let me stop there so other people have a chance.
3: Can you you hear me? Right.
0: How do you see the attempts at state-building among stateless hill tribes or hill-based people themselves, such as the Karen? I'm
1: sorry, say this again. How do you
0: see attempts at state-building amongst formerly stateless or hill tribe people themselves, such as the Karen?
1: Uh, Do you... I I need to ask you a question about what you mean by this. Do do you mean the historic efforts by Karen prophets to (laughs) establish, uh, to become new kings, or do you mean the KNU effort to create an independent state? Yeah,
0: the KNU.
1: Right. Um, Well, in a sense, uh, I have nothing original to say that you, I expect, wouldn't say yourself, that uh, in a sense the... Only political module available, it seems, in the modern world is the module of the nation state. So, the aspirations by uh, people who wish to have autonomy from the Burman state, uh, the only thing on offer is either a huge degree of local autonomy or an independent state. Uh, and uh, aside from the fragments of Yugoslavia and Bangladesh. The international system has not been kind to the effort to make new states. Uh, and uh, although, uh, although I am a completely radical constructionist when it comes to ethnic identity, that is to say, I don't think there is anything uh, essentially immemorial about Karen. Uh, people move in and out of Karenness. Uh, the Karens next to the Mun, the Karens next to the Tai, the Karens next to the Shan are different. You can't find a single trait that belongs to all the Karens. They speak mutually, and yet they have, in a sense, like the Cossacks, they have created a kind of Karen identity, which deserves its own honor and respect and recognition. I think, uh, but um, they're neither they nor any other ethnic group. Uh, dissident against Rangoon or Napido mm-hmm. is going to have a state very soon. Yeah, there's a gentleman back there who had their hand up. So
0: there's a gentleman back there
3: who had their hand up previously. Uh, John Seidel, LSC. Um, a couple of questions. I questions. Mean, one, if, if you take the 1945 uh, uh, temporal boundary seriously, um it doesn't quite get you off the hook in terms of uh, the ghost in the room of Edmund Leach, who, I, although he may be published after 1945, I think he did his field work during World War II, right? Right. In the Highlands. And it would be worth hearing uh, how you'd want to uh, relate your work to his. Um, but in a second thing that one might wonder in your account, as you mentioned, not just civilizations and states, but the great world religions, is. Um, does your perspective offer any illumination on the question of Protestantism's relatively greater success in climbing the hills of upland Southeast Asia? And then perhaps relatedly, um, in anticipation of a, you know, a kind of a, uh, another attack on, on your use of 45 as a Great Wall of China, it, you know, if, you're, if 1945 then prevents you from addressing the kind of right-wing history of upland Southeast Asians, um, that they end up being Wang Pao and montagnards and and right wing Karens against Burmese socialists and so forth. Um, is it that we should then excuse them for that right wing history as it's merely a defensive reaction against lowland uh, socialist regimes, and that therefore you should spell that out? Uh, if not, here now then for the book to get yourself off the hook.
1: Let <laughs> let me let me start with the last question i it's not my job to go scolding hill people right uh, uh, and awarding gold stars and black marks uh, for their uh, their political conduct I, I I it it certainly is the case that the po- you could say uh, Again, you're putting me in a zone in which I feel uncomfortable because I I haven't thought this through very carefully. But off the top of my head, it seems to me that the the huge political fragmentation of the hills—that is, they have been so successful in preventing the creation of states—that they have, in a sense, shattered themselves into a million little fragments. which are occasionally aggregated by a strong man Uh, and with the sort of tradition which Leach points to and others of feasting in which you build a kind of political authority in the hills. You create these units that are, oh, you could say predatory, piratical units that are often uh, depend on being parasitical vis-a-vis a a state with raiding, with using the dominating the trade routes, uh, controlling the opium, uh, and so on. And all of these little fragments of state making, if you like, then are available to colonial military recruiters and so on to use uh, the CIA, the special forces, uh, and so on. So it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that in their million fragments on both sides, they're Hmong fighting with the Communists, Karen fighting with the Communists, Karen fighting with the uh, right-wing groups. Um, they are... Uh, uh, it's that kind of lack of unity and fragmentation that gives us this. The, the question of religion is, is, a, is an interesting one. Uh, the... In Burma, the interesting case is the Shan Hills, in which you have the Shan or Thai people who actually plant wet rice and have little statelets uh, in the uplands of eastern Burma and actually all the way over to India and into Vietnam. Uh, and the they are, with some exceptions, almost all Theravada Buddhists as well. And yet I'm told that if you go to the Shan Hills and you go from abbey to abbey in the Shan Hills, it is like an archaeological tour of excommunicated, heretical, heterodox sects in the valley that have been thrown out of the valley. And both, both uh, not only has Theravada Buddhism taken exotic forms in the Shan Hills, uh, never subject to repression successfully, uh, but dissident sects in the valley have gone to the hills. So here are the Shan Hills who are, in a sense, halfway mid-slope you know, between highlands and lowlands, and they're Buddhists, but boy, are they exotic, dangerous Buddhists uh, as far as the Burmese consider them. The, I think it's fair to say that people in the hills have chosen, partly because of their stigmatization by lowland peoples, religious affiliations that are anything but the valley religion. Uh, just the way tribals and untouchables in India uh, tended not until recently to become Hindus, but to opt for Islam, uh, for Christianity, um, and so on. Uh, and so it, the other thing that's interesting, so when you have a Christian lowlands, as you have in the Philippines, often the hill people are not Christian uh, because they uh, associate lowland religion with Christianity, Uh, whereas in the hills of Southeast Asia, becoming Catholic or Protestant uh, is a link. It's both a way of escaping stigmatization, of adopting a great traditional religion and bringing along with it certain allies from uh, against the valley people. And that's why it's uh, embraced. The there these stories, of course, the it's a story told so often that it's become rather hackneyed uh, uh, that the Karen idea that their older brother or younger brother had taken away their book. And then when the Christian missionaries appeared with a the book, they thought, aha, so the older brother is back. And many converted in huge numbers actually very, uh, very quickly because it, in a sense, was uh, fit perfectly into their prophecy and the Christian millennial message of a world turned upside down, of a conquering king, uh, Islam and Christianity and Buddhism all have a millennial cosmology that maps so beautifully on one another that uh, any of these vehicles will get you uh, into a kind of millennial millennial space. So those people who became Christians, like the Quran, the some of whom are Buddhists, some of whom are Christians. If you look at their Christian um, uh, prophets, they're pretty indistinguishable from the Quran Buddhist prophets. Uh, the cosmologies are close enough that the repertoire uh, is very much the same. Uh, as far as Edmund Leach, uh, I think it's astounding. There's a book just recently published by Mandy Sedan, and Francois Robin on uh, sort of 50 years on a reevaluation of Leach. And yes, it's critical of Leach. It has some interesting things to say about his field work and what he didn't understand about the Kachin. Uh, on the other hand, uh, any of us would be happy to have someone writing a book about our book 50 years later uh, <laughs> because it is so extraordinarily insightful and about as successful as one can imagine uh, a book in which all the field notes were lost uh, being uh, I think his idea of uh, there are hill people since he has this for those of you who are not leechomaniacs the um, leech has the central concept is hierarchical forms of being Kachin and less hierarchical Gumsa, uh, Gumlao, and there was actually a like egalitarian rebellion that is documented elsewhere among in the Kachin Hills that had to do with opium profits and uh, struggles over chieftaincy. and there are in the hills both relatively hierarchical groups, all, always unstable, and then there are radically egalitarian groups. So groups like the Gumlao Kachin like the Lizu, the Lahu, the Kumu, uh, some of the Hmong, they have legends about how they always assassinate headmen who get too uh, uppity and too strong. Uh, and so they have radical egalitarian ideology in which uh, they do not tolerate even small... Uh, differences of control over feasting uh, and village headmen who want to turn the rest of their villages, uh, villagers into serfs. And so, I think you can, you can, make some broad categories between hill peoples who are radically egalitarian and also have traditions of flight. Other hill groups who tend to settle rather parasitically close to Valley kingdoms and to exploit the trade opportunities, like little shadow empires. But they are truly parasitical because if, in a sense, the host dies, they're toast also. Uh, they depend on right, uh, this relationship, and they only last as long as uh, their host is helping
0: yeah, I think that will have to be our last question we'll be continuing in the atrium which is just over the road with a small, with a small reception um, for, for Jim and you're all welcome to join us there and I would like to really compliment you both on a very compelling um, and fascinating presentation but also I have to say this is the first um, lecture or debate I've ever chaired at LSE where nobody has got up and left by eight o'clock, it's um, you, you've done a really fine job. Thank, Thank you, you very much.